Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 238, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode, as more districts shift secondary education to later start times each morning, elementary school classes are needing to start earlier. So what impact does that have on our little ones? We'll share the new research. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. Our guest this episode is a wildlife biologist who's written for National Geographic that wants us to consider a new perspective when teaching biology. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I know probably every week you go, you know, you're good every single week. We want to hear that you're doing well. That's good. (laughs) But I just, I can't complain. We're rocking and rolling. And can you believe it that January is almost over? So no complaints from me. Just, you know, busy, busy. Yes, it it has been busy, uh, I think, for all of us. And today I've got a a topic about something that I think we've all been hearing about for years, but uh, we're going to dive a little deeper with it. And what I mean by that is, you know, many states and school districts have been kind of seeking out low-cost, evidence-based approaches to improving student achievement and engagement with the school. And and one solution that's kind of bubbled up over the past several years is that idea for secondary schools maybe to delay starting school times later. Research that says that adolescent sleep patterns may improve test mm-hmm. scores and so forth. So it's kind of like, it doesn't really cost much. All we got to do is delay, delay it a little bit. And then like, for example, California recently enacted legislation requiring public middle schools to start no earlier than 8 a.m. and public high schools to start no earlier than 8.30 a.m. Like, what are your thoughts on that? We'll start there. I do believe in that. I have read some of the research on that. When I was a principal of a K-8 school, it was one of the things that I actually advocated for um, when looking at uh, historical trends with the student achievement. And since my school went all the way to eighth grade, you know, I tried to explain to them some of the circumstances that um that my student body may have been experiencing and how that would benefit them. And I was able to convince um, district leadership and we did that. Um, and it was very helpful, especially when you're dealing with high poverty schools. A lot of times, you know, there's... um grandparents or someone else in the family helping to raise the children or whatnot. And it just helps out. But here recently, our secondary schools, we also made the shift in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, our middle school starts about 8.15. Our high school starts about 8.30. And it's definitely beneficial. And it didn't cost us anything except for time and effort to be very strategic about our transportation routes. But other than that, I think that has been a success. Well, and you just teed up my, kind of my next point. So you said, you know, the time and effort and, and trying to figure out how to lay out transportation. So if you're starting middle school and high school later, what's that mean for elementary school? 
That means elementary schools start earlier, but they are also released earlier. And then you double back your routes to your secondary schools. It also means that your child nutrition department um, starts earlier. Um, You'll be you'll have to have some adjustments with um, the custodial staff. But I mean, all of those things don't necessarily cost you more. They just require you to adjust schedules and plans. So two people from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, um, published a study in the American Education Research Association, um, and they were trying to answer three things because they felt like there hasn't been a whole lot of research out there on this. And, And one, they were trying to figure out. Do elementary school start times influence self-reported measures of student sleep? They wanted to figure out, do elementary school start times predict measures of student engagement with school? And they want to figure out, do elementary school start times predict student achievement? So basically, like, what's the impact of early start time for elementary school is what what they were trying to find out. So um, they studied a bunch of data um, that was collected in uh, North Carolina. And um, here are their key findings. They found that earlier start times for elementary school students resulted in students getting less sleep and slightly increased the absentee rate. Okay, slightly. However, they claimed that there was a near zero negative effect on student achievement and significantly higher math test scores, especially for economically disadvantaged students. Um, So their conclusion was that there's no downside to having elementary school students start earlier. I mean, with the exception of maybe a slight uptick in the absences. The disappointment that I have is in the very first result and that they get less sleep, but their amount of sleep and their preparedness is a family responsibility, not a school responsibility. And one thing we do have to consider is research tells us that our literacy instruction should be uninterrupted, an uninterrupted block for that time for teaching reading. Well, if you teach reading at the very start of the day um, and students are at their best first thing in the morning, I would like for them to study that and give us the, give us the correlation and the data on that. But we can't do anything about the procedures and the protocols and all of the different homes, you know, for families that we serve. I do know when you think back to old school, eight o'clock, everything was shut down and you had to be in bed and parents made sure. And times have surely changed and children are up. Children have cell phones. Mm-hmm. They're in front of screens a lot more, which I also think um, impacts their sleeping patterns. But I'm glad to know that it does not have a significant or even um, direct negative impact on achievement. Agreed. And, and I, you know, all I can do is kind of look at like our situation. Like I feel like my seven year old, she pops out of bed at 6 a.m., you know, 6.15 at the latest, like z- zero problem. But then, you know. Isn't that what you hear from most parents who right. have an off day or have a couple of days of vacation and they go so much for sleeping in? Right. My little ones are up and ready for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. And then and then I know like my own experience, like you were talking about how important it is to like we, we may um, retain literacy instruction better in the morning. Like I, when I need to write, say like I'm writing the summary for this podcast, I am almost useless after dinner time, like, or even like late afternoon. Like, I have to do it basically before lunch, or my brain just, I don't know what happens, but it relaxes along with the sun going down and the stillness of the earth. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, I would argue, and I'm more on that elementary kid school time. That's we wake up early with her. Um, so yeah, I, it's good to see that there is some research. Um, what I'll do is I'll link to the actual study because uh, it's you know obviously way more in depth than what I've said on here. I bet um, it's pretty interesting though to even consider 
you know, will this impact us? But we do know for sure from research that it does impact our secondary students. Right. And so if you can make the adjustment, I, I heartily uh, recommend it. All right. Well, sounds good. Are you ready for today's Brad idea? I'm pumped about it. Let's go. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is a wildlife biologist who has written 14 books and more than 200 articles, which includes National Geographic coverage that spans 35 years. Doug Chadwick's latest project is his new book, Four-Fifths a Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that just might save us all. And today, Doug is going to tell us why that perspective should be considered for lessons in the classroom. Doug, such an honor to have you on Class Dismissed. Oh, hey, thank you. First, I want to kind of dive into the title of this book because I think it's very important to the conversation we're about to have. Four-Fifths a Grizzly. Explain to us why you came up with that title. (laughs) Well, first of all, I love grizzly bears. I think I'm I'm a little bit... I'd like to say it's because I'm a curious scientist. I've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours watching them from Alaska to, of all places, the Gobi Desert. And... uh, but the truth is, I think I'm 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 partly an adrenaline junkie, but I'm partly fascinated by an animal that is indomitably wild, and you know is so much like us. It's behaviorally complex. It's an omnivore. It can live in all manner of habitats, from the mountaintops to the valleys, and. Uh, turns out we share between probably 80 to 85% of our genes with this animal. And I also, as a wildlife biologist, I do feel that if you want to understand animals, study them a bit, at least, as though they were people. And if you want to understand people, study them as though they're animals, and they are. And I just want to make sure our audience didn't miss this. You're, you're telling us that me as a human and all of us listening as humans are basically four-fifths the same genes as a grizzly bear. You bet. Um, we're, <laughs> uh, I don't know if people would take this as good news or bad news, but you're also 7% a bacteria. You're 23% a wine grape. Uh, you're 20 some percent a roundworm, 40% an insect, 30% a banana. And 85% for the cow that I'm looking at in the distant field from my, from my house. So most mammals share 80 some percent of our genes. When you get up to our fellow primates, um, most of which in the world now are rare, threatened, or endangered, the, the things most like us. Um, and you get to the great apes, then we have a 99% sharing going on with chimpanzees and bonobos. And 98% with gorillas, it's 97 with orangutans. Um, so these are us and we are them to that extent. And so being genetically related to the rest of life, um, you know, it's not just an intellectual exercise. To me, it's deeply meaningful and, and, it explains a lot of where science is going these days. Where one of the most common things I hear, Nick, uh, or read in scientific papers is a trait formerly thought to be unique to humans. Um, we're opening up to the fact that we are not as separate and special as we like to perceive ourselves sometimes, and the animals are showing us this. And so are the ubiquitous videos and and um, 
uh, cameras out there. We're just seeing whole aspects of animal behavior that we have to find a, actually a brand new language for to that incorporates human qualities or qualities we share, but without being anthropocentric or without, you know, turning them into fuzzy little humans. This idea, though, that that, you know, we're, we're the same as, like you said, four-fifths the grizzly bear and, and so on and so on. I mean, you've been writing about the wildlife and, and biology for, for all of your life, mostly, uh, at least 35 years. Yep. And yep. when did you have the epiphany that this idea and this discussion about sharing all these genes with wildlife, whether it's insects or like you said, a grape or, or, or anything, when did you have the epiphany that like, I need to get this out there. I need people to learn to think this way. That's a terrific question because I, I, I have been asking myself that this book just sort of came out and I normally, the last books I've written about uh, one was on Wolverines and which nobody knows about. So I'm a cheerleader waving my arm saying we're losing these things in the lower 48. Nobody even knows what they are. And then the last grizzly bears in the Gobi desert, there are about 30 left in the world. And it, you know, it hit me, I guess, just, gosh, I'm, it made me feel like I'm pretty slow. It takes, uh, what do I need? A sledgehammer up alongside the head. Um, I don't have time to write about all the species one by one, all the wild places one by one that need attention and a little more help to, to survive the, the current um, 8 billion people and their activities in the world. And so I thought, I don't know of a bigger subject than what's the nature of nature and what's the nature of nature in us. But I thought, again, until we understand that, then I'm out putting my finger in holes in the dike, as is every other conservationist. And I think we need a much more sweeping um change in the way we think about ourselves and the importance of nature, you know, that it's not a hobby, it's not a, a special interest, it's not a good thing to do because you like um, antiquities or, you know, any of the other ways we perceive nature as sort of a luxury and feeling as though we're liberated from it and we can do whatever we want as much as we want. Um, until we get past that, then I, I just foresee a, a loss upon loss into the future. And eventually, you know, the degradation of ecosystems or their loss and collapse. And I don't, I don't want to get into an environmental sermon because I think there's a lot of positive things happening. And that was the other reason I wanted to write the book is to say, hey, here's what works. Not only uh, see yourself differently, but see yourself succeeding in keeping this remarkable living planet we've been gifted with. You're speaking to an audience of educators, and, and I guess we should probably zero in more on the science educators, if anybody. Um, but I guess, help me with the message that you have for them. Is it that, you know, we need to do more than just you know teach about, hey, here is an animal and here are its arms and legs and abdomen and thorax and so forth. It's more that, <laughs> yeah. that we like, while that's great, but we should also maybe be teaching the fact that we're intertwined 
with animals. And, and it sounds funny. I mean, you, I could maybe jokingly say like, Hey man, we're all one. We're, we're spiritual yeah, and yeah. we're connected with animals, but this is way more scientific than that was what you're saying. This isn't just, let's be one with nature. This is, we, we are technically one with nature. Yeah. And, and I look, I, I feel like, um, a bit of a fraud, you know, telling science teachers, uh, my opinions of, of how to teach I, because I don't have a, any formal teaching background. I'm, I'm just an educator as a writer and a, you know, public speaker and that sort of thing. But I'm, um, I guess what I would say is that this all started for me when I looked through a microscope when I was about seven or eight and I realized, oh my gosh, um, there's wonder everywhere and the harder you look the more life you find and and so the idea of a living planet um became much more real to me and and it became much more alive um the majority the overwhelming majority of life on earth is invisible that's what i discovered and it just changed my my view of the world and it changed it in a very positive way so um, I would start off talking about or asking the question of what is an individual? Um, what, is, what is a human made of? And it turns out we're made of a lot more forms of life than we imagine we are. I'm curious, what are we made of? I think you, you mentioned earlier, we, we are somehow similar to a grape. Like, explain that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, you know, I talked about discovering the microbial world and, and you know, the fact that if I go out and take a pinch of soil or a handful of soil in my yard, I've got hundreds of miles of mycorrhizal back, uh, uh, fungi. I've got billions of bacteria and archaea um, of thousands of different species. And, and then I thought, well, what we learn in biology is, is how does a human develop? And I say, you know, the truth is I was a microbe. I started off at four one thousandths of an inch in size. I was smaller than some bacteria. Um, and that's when I was a fertilized egg, right? And then I went through this miraculous process that involves all 20 to 25,000 genes, 3 billion nucleotide base pairs, and somehow nature, having tested this process over approximately 4 billion years, is able to come up with a human. I mean, this is miraculous. And I not only started off as a microbe, but I have about 30 trillion human cells. I have more microbial cells in me than that, consisting of thousands of species. And most of my DNA is microbial in the sense that I host more DNA from microbes uh, by a factor of like 99%. 1% of the things in my body are human. And, you know, all of a sudden, I start thinking of myself differently. And then I was looking into the origins of the organelles called mitochondria that power all cellular uh, life except uh, bacteria and archaea and realize that 
there, you know, it was discovered actually several decades ago that these are modified bacteria, just as the chloroplasts that um, photosynthesize and make all plant life possible and make our life possible too. They are modified cyanobacteria. So the immediate question is again, are we in, what what is an individual human and what is an individual plant? And so I I'm trying to put this in how do you teach this sort of thing? And it sounds almost woo-woo, which is why I think I was surprised about how slowly this kind of revolutionary discoveries, how how slowly they've gotten out to the public and into the education system. Because I think it's, it's, it's so revolutionary, it's kind of uncomfortable. Is that part of it? I wish, you know, I had a teacher to, a group of teachers to tell me uh, their thoughts on why this is. But why don't we see things for what they are? I mean, I'm, I owe my ability to move and think and, and, you know, every critter out there above the level of a bacterium is a joint venture. It's a partnership. It's a collaboration. It's a symbiosis. It's, it's all these connections that I, I didn't learn about when I went through, uh, biology and wildlife biology and, I don't see it as a big theme in most of the educational material I see. I, I think one of the key things you said, though, that would register with me, maybe if I was in high school or in biology class, and, and you tried to explain to me that, you know, only, I think you said 1% of me is what makes me a human and, and the rest is sh- <laughs> shared. I think if yeah. if I could, you know, wrap my mind around um, that philosophically, I think I might start to look at things differently as I go forward in life. And, and I think yeah. that's kind of the goal, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, look from the, from the more mystical, uh, like you said, one with all life standpoint, it is a joy to be able to look out at the world and say, you know, I, uh, part of me or part of something I am part of is swimming in the coral reefs, you know, over off the coast of Zanzibar. And part of me is opening my petals to the sun up in the Arctic. And part of me is having a dispute in a monkey, you know, a monkey tribe somewhere up in a rainforest canopy in Central Africa. I mean, I am connected to all life. But again, to understand, should you shouldn't be able to, in my opinion, be able to get through a high school biology class without understanding a heck of a lot more about who you are. And that, say, involves our genetic relationships. It involves our microbes. Our mi- There is a lot more attention to microbiomes, right? People are eating probiotics. Mm-hmm. They understand yeah. that we can't digest things without the help of all these organisms. Uh, medical science is rapidly finding out more about how the balance of, of microbes within us determines not just our health, but our moods, because a lot of these bacteria and archaea produce um, uh, hormones, mood-altering hormones. And, you know, we, there's a there's a frontier there. It's exciting. That's I think that's the main thing any teacher can convey is we don't know the, all the answers, but 
the more we learn, the more the frontier opens up and, and there's a, there's a great wondrous space out there to investigate about this complexity of what goes into the making of a human. And I guess another takeaway for me from just our conversation is that we as humans need to quit looking at ourselves as uh, something separate and something, I mean, we are superior in a lot of ways, but, but we're not the, we're not the all superior being here. And, and I guess, is that, is that the right takeaway? I, well, I think what you're getting at is, I, I don't know. I haven't seen public opinion polls. I think a great majority of people out there still think of, when I say microbes and bacteria and that sort of thing, they're thinking, well, that's germs. And, and it was sort of a negative connotation to it. And I think there's a reluctance to embrace what science has been telling us since the 1970s, 1980s about these connections. And, you know, it's uncomfortable. But to me, it's, it isn't because it makes us more than human. It makes us, you know, look, I have, we're entitled to a very high opinion of ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're not, we're not entitled to considering ourselves as, you know, special and unique at, to the degree that we do. But, but certainly we're, we can say that we're more than human. We're greater than even our, our most inflated opinion of ourselves because we, we are, we are literally, you know, tied into, connected to all the rest of life. And, Again, I come at this as a conservationist too. Like, I don't think there's this urgency to quit denaturing the planet at the pace we are. And, and you hear, you know, you every day each of us gets up and says, you know, what can one person do in a world of 8 billion when you read things like, you know, a news report that there will be as much plastic in the ocean? Well, it will outweigh all the fish in the ocean by the year 2050. I admire your approach. Uh, again, the book is Four Fifths a Grizzly, and, and I admire this approach of you know let's teach children and, and adults that you know yeah we are we are one. This is nature, rather than saying hey you need to recycle better or use less plastic. Let's just kind of change how we think of ourselves, and maybe those changes will naturally happen in return. Yeah, that, that that's the most I could try for in a book without a lot of details. But I did include a couple of you know major projects in the world, one with conserving most of the critically endangered species on the planet are on islands because islands are very vulnerable. And and many of our wild places throughout the mainlands, the continents, are becoming islands in a sea of development. And so it puts all these species critically at risk. That's where most extinctions happen and happen fastest is small, vulnerable populations. So Large landscape connectivity. Um, I keep using that word, you know, connections between us and the life in us and around us, uh, connections between wildlands, the flow of genes across a larger landscape. This is what keeps nature intact. And I think that that was that would be a separate discussion, Nick, but but how do we how do we practically go out and conserve uh, the wildlife that almost everyone, you know, likes and appreciates. But they, we've been going at it species by species, place by place, as I did in my writing. Um, and that won't hold up over time because, you know, these are too small. 
and they're too disconnected. So what's going on is we're fragmenting the habitats and the ecosystems around us, and they are going to fall apart to some extent, and the species will be lost. But all it takes is, I, I think, a, a, this fundamental revision of how we view life. It's all justified by science. And I want to put the science out there. So the challenge is, how do you write a book about this stuff without uh, having people interpret it as an environmental sermon? Oh, my gosh, I've seen way too many of those. Uh, or too much geek science to take in all at once. So it's the hardest thing I ever wrote. But um, I, I think I got some of it right. I love your approach. Again, it's uh, it's a fascinating uh, perspective. Again, four-fifths, a grizzly, a new perspective on nature that just might save us all. Doug, uh, I appreciate this conversation. I'm going to have to ask another question because uh, it's a little off topic, but I'm just a curious person about what you've done with your life and your career. I need to know, what is it like to be watching a grizzly bear or a wolverine from whatever safe distance you deem safe? Like, what What's going <laughs> through your mind when you're doing that type of stuff? Um, well, this is why I go to salmon streams. Um, I was at a place called, Mc, well, up in Alaska on the coast. Um, and I was, oh gosh, um, comfortably 30 feet away from thousand pound, you know, bears, uh, that are fishing for salmon. But, you know, you look around and you say there are wolves fishing next to the, to the bears. And there, I've also seen wolves trying to kill bear cubs and, and mother bears trying to kill wolves in, in different settings. But at a salmon stream, it's like a, a Disney special. I mean, it's this peaceable <laughs> kingdom. So I can get rid of the fear and I can just focus on what that animal's doing. And sometimes they would come over as close as, you know, I don't know, eight or 10 feet away because they're curious about us just as we're curious about them. I've had the same thing happen with whales. I had, I've had, you know, 40 ton, 40 foot long humpback whales come over and we're no, we're literally nose to nose underwater. And I, I felt honored that something that big and magnificent was as curious as, about me. Um, I, I, that's like a bug on a leaf saying, Oh my gosh, this big human stopped to look at me. How cool is that? <laughs> to get past the fear with grizzlies, I, I'm not I'm not promoting grizzlies as our big furry friends. I mean, I'm I hike all the time in grizzly country, and I know uh, under the wrong circumstances it can go terribly wrong. But again, when you can get past the fear and watch them just going about their lives, you see a whole different animal, and then all the it makes you realize how much BS there is surrounding the likes of wolverines and grizzlies, which we automatically turn into, you know, mythical monsters and uh, icons of this, that, or the other thing that tell us more about humans than about the animals themselves. It's very, very hard for a human to really see another animal for what it is. It's fascinating, Doug. Again, I could probably talk to you all day about all your experiences. I appreciate you uh, taking the time, though, that you have shared with us here on Class Dismissed. Are you ready for our rapid fire pop quiz ready what happens if i fail do i what's the grading <laughs> system here? it is impossible to fail so no worries okay uh, i don't have to go sit in a corner or go see the principal or of course something. not okay all right first question Got first it. question if students could only go to school for one subject which subject should it be 
Well, natural history. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? The joy of being outside. I, you know, I've, you've probably heard the expression, leave no child inside. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> um, I never fail to have the best time of my life being out with kids. Just It doesn't matter if you're in a backyard looking at the grass or picking through dirt and looking at worms and, and insect larvae or you're out in a wild place. But I'd say outside, um, the two things, if you can get kids looking through a microscope and you can get them outside, just they've got the energy and curiosity and and willingness. You, I, I just feel like that's that's what I would emphasize any way I could. What does every child deserve? <laughs> All that we've been given and 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 an appreciation of it. What do you think the biggest challenge is for today's educators? Well, in the, my school district here, we're surrounded by, by wild lands, but it's tremendously difficult to get um, kids out on field trips. To get in touch with nature, you need your hands on it and your feet on the ground. What's the best gift to give an educator? I always thought the gift was seeing those moments when the the wonder and the understand and then the understanding, wonder followed by understanding comes into a child's eyes. Which teacher changed your life? Well, I had a teacher named Mr. Bohannon in grade school. Um, I had a teacher let me out into the field and during high school uh, because I we were lucky enough to have uh, some some good countryside nearby. And then uh, Gordon Oriens, who taught animal behavior at the University of Washington in my undergraduate career, and um, a couple of other teachers that that taught animal behavior and and opened my eyes to the capacities and the full dimensions of animals. Um, so I, I, I was really lucky, and I, I'm sure everybody has who is a naturalist. Look, the the best naturalists I know, Nick, are are, and the best scientists I know are just curious kids. They're all eight to eleven years old, and some part of them right. still still. And last question: pen or pencil? <laughs> um, you got you tickled on that one. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna go for. Uh, uh, cuneiform engraving with a stylus on clay. <laughs> is that what you do? Is that how you take notes when you're in the wilderness? Absolutely. Very efficient. You know, if you, as long as you can carry a hundred pound pack. <laughs> uh, again, uh, you're listening to uh, our friend Doug Chadwick, whose uh, recent book has just come out. It is titled Four Fifths a Grizzly, a new perspective on nature that just might save us all. Doug, thank you so much for sharing your perspective with us. Well, thanks for thanks for that, and thanks for those thanks for those good questions. I'm, I gave lousy answers, but now I get to think about them when I uh, when we sign off. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed.com. 
We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.